just talking to you, I want to talk to you and you not feel like you're talking to a polished something, a product. I don't want you to feel like that. I want people who are listening to me sing to feel like they're listening to somebody who has been where they've been, who's pushed through what they pushed through, and, and they feel encouraged that they're not alone in this journey called faith in a culture that has nothing to do with faith. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Good afternoon. You are listening to Premier Christian Radio. I am Sam Hells, editor of Premier Christianity Magazine. That is the UK's leading Christian magazine, and it sponsors this show. We are bringing you brand new articles, reviews, features, interviews, and more online every day and in print every month. If you want to join the community of subscribers that we have that gets to enjoy all of that content, then why not check out our special offer right now? You can receive the next six editions of the print magazine direct to your door and full online access for just £9.99. That's a six-month subscription for less than £10. Take advantage of that special offer right now at premierchristianity.com. Every week on The Profile, we speak to a different Christian about their life, faith, and ministry. And this week's guest is Anthony Evans. Before I tell you any more about Anthony, why don't we hear some of his work? Because he is well known for taking some of your favourite worship songs and putting his own unique spin on them. Here is a little sneak peek, a little sample of some of Anthony's music. Check it out. Praise a hallelujah. Everything inside of me I raise a hallelujah I will watch the darkness flee I raise a hallelujah In the middle of my misery I raise my hallelujah Fear you lost your heart Anthony Evans' unique spin on Razor Hallelujah, Everby, and what a beautiful name. So, let's meet the man behind the music. 
I recently had the opportunity to catch up with Anthony Evans, hear about his childhood, growing up the son of Dr. Tony Evans, his music, working with Christina Aguilera, going on The Voice, and also the subject of mental health. His latest book addresses that particular issue, and Anthony will share some of his own experiences of that, including his own diagnosis of attention deficit disorder, and why we need to, as Christians, get better about talking about our emotional well-being. So all that and more to come. This is my interview with Anthony Evans. You're listening to The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hells, and you've joined us for The Profile, where we sit down with a different Christian each and every week to hear some of their story. And I'm really pleased to say that my guest on the show today is Anthony Evans, one of Christian Music's premier worship leaders and singer-songwriters. He's released 10 solo projects. He's written books, produced music videos, and even acted in a number of different movies as well. Anthony's appearance on The Voice led to him performing and producing vocals for major artists and go on to be nominated for a Grammy as well. But his new book is entitled When Faith Meets Therapy, Find Hope and a Practical Path to Emotional, Spiritual and Relational Healing. So there's loads to talk about on the show today. Anthony Evans, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's wonderful to have you on. And many people will, of course, know you uh, will often be introduced as the son of. And I imagine that might come with its own issues. And I want to talk a bit about that. But you are famously the son of Dr. Tony Evans. So just tell me a little bit, what was it like growing up, not just as a pastor's kid, but the son of a pastor who actually has a a national and even international following? What was that like for you? Did that that put unhealthy expectations on you at any level? I think it did put unhealthy expectations on me, but I put those on me because I'm naturally a perfectionist and I want everything right and I want to uh, do well and I want everybody to, to be okay and all, all that stuff. So I put those on me and then people who didn't even know they were adding to them would say, are you going to be just like your dad when you grow up? And they didn't know that what they were doing when they said that. So it did put an unhealthy expectation on me. But what let me tell you why that unhealthy expectation did not turn into me losing my mind. And that is because... Our father, my dad, is the same man at home that he is on the stage or in the books or on the radio. And there was never a disconnect between him, his his life, who he was to us. Like my dad is my hero, period, because he's so consistent. He knows what he's called to do. And that is what has given me um, solace in the moments where I was feeling like, ah, this is too much, was just um, me seeing the faithfulness of my my father as a father. That's so important, isn't it? Because we've we've sadly seen so many examples of that not being the case of well-known Christians who might look great on Instagram, but then we discover behind the scenes been doing stuff that's, that's horrific. And so actually to hear that your dad was the same person on stage and at home, that's encouraging, isn't it? For Christians who actually look at the general landscape and they're, they're a bit shocked, actually, at some of the falls from grace we've seen. Oh, yeah, it's very it's very encouraging. And and I, I the pressure, I can't imagine the pressure that my dad has had on him, you know, it's, it's, you're dealing with 300 employees and 12,000 members and books and that's pressure. And to be able to sustain, there's, there's something to be really marveled at as it relates to being able to sustain character and sustain integrity and sustain diligence and sustain your relationship with that. That's, it's a feat in this day and age. That is like a feat. Like you are an amazing human being because you were able to do that with, without a hint of scandal. That's just amazing. So obviously you grew up in a Christian family. 
how yes. did that play itself out in your childhood and your teens? You know, can you remember a moment where faith kind of became your own? Um, or were there moments where actually growing up in a Christian family was, wasn't easy and you kind of had your moments of doubt or, or um, kind of wanting to run away from it all? Well, my faith became my own at the age of 18. I remember it very vividly because I went to college and I felt like crazy because that was my first time stepping outside of my, my Christian bubble. And that was my first time realizing that God doesn't have grandkids. Like you don't get like, you don't get like grafted in just because everybody else around you is. And I walked, I was away from everybody around me. And I was like, I don't even know who I am outside of this environment I've been in. So I did have to walk into my own experience with the Lord. And there were moments in that experience where I was like, I can't do this. I'm out of here. This is too much pressure on me. So I had to, excuse me, I had to come to a place where my faith became my own, but God was gracious in that. He's been gracious. I, I, I always felt like there was this standard, almost like an unattainable standard. Sometimes being Tony Evans' sons feels like being Anthony Evans Jr., which is Tony Evans Jr., feels like being Michael Jordan Jr. Like people are, there's just a pressure. Like if you grab a ball, people are looking at you like, oh, this is Michael Jordan Jr. Like anytime I grabbed a hold of my own ministry, I felt this pressure of everybody looking at me going, is he going to be able to dunk from the free throw line like his dad? So I had to come into the my my own faith. And I remember that again happening at 18 where it was like, Anthony, let's set expectations that are related to you, not related to what your dad has, has achieved. So that at times makes you want to walk away because you realize, well, this is going to be a lot of work for me to figure this out on my own. But again, um, my I, God has taught me the lesson of, when you do what you can, he will do what you can't. I have learned that very, he's been so gracious in teaching me that lesson along the way that now I'm, I'm walking confidently in my own, my own faith and my own specific calling. How would you describe your calling? Uh, that's a great question. I would describe my calling as I, I know that I am called to authenticity, vulnerability, and transparency. Like I'm, I'm called to that. And I use the tools of music for that. I use the tools of of um, literature and, and books for that, um, speaking for that, but that is my objective: is to um, grab the heart of an audience, or heart of just the person like you, Sam. Just just talking to you, I want to talk to you, and you not feel like you're talking to a polished something, a product. I don't want you to feel like that. I want you to feel like you're talking to somebody or that I want people who are listening to me sing to feel like they're listening to somebody who has been where they've been, who's pushed through what they pushed through. And, and they feel encouraged that they're not alone in this journey called faith in a culture that's about, that has nothing to do with faith right now. Yeah. It's so interesting you pick up on vulnerability because it's, it's a theme that comes through so often when I, when I meet people and, and that, that desire to be authentic and to be vulnerable do you think there is a, a new desire amongst younger Christians today to do that? Is that desire there partly because that's just not been modeled in the past? And there has been this kind of attitude of, oh, well, if you're a Christian, you've got your whole life together. And right. is, is there a bit of a correction that's going on now with younger generations saying, actually, no, we could be open about things that don't go right? Yes, I think that there is. And the, and the culture in some ways has led that. Like, with, um, you know, whether it's Instagram or just socials in general, letting you see behind the curtain, even though sometimes it's still fake. You know what I mean? But you get to kind of see behind what the, the facade, like of a famous person, you would never have seen them out to lunch with their friends or posting from the, in the studio or at home. Like you get to see the other side of the veil. And I think in faith, people want to see that for sure. And I think there's a, I heard this the other day that there's a major, there's a major difference between 
vulnerability and transparency. Transparency is like having glass windows at your house and people can kind of see in. Vulnerability is like letting them into the house and they can see what's under your bed and in your cap. Like it's a different thing. But I think everybody at a root level right now is like, at least be transparent with me. Like at least let me know what's going on behind the walls that you have put up in, in your life. And I do think people long for that and they will go where they can find it. And church should be the place that they can find it, not a club or, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. So take me back to that moment when you turned 18, your faith is becoming your own. What were your kind of hopes and aspirations at that point in terms of career and ministry? Did, did you have any? Did you think I want to I want to be a singer? I want to do that for the rest of my life? No, I did not think that I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to go into animal science. I wanted to be a large animal veterinarian. And no people saying, yeah, crazy. I, that was my plan, like to go to uh, animal, uh, to be a veterinarian. That was my plan. And then I, um, I, people heard me sing kind of at 16, 17, 18, and people around me were like, yo, if you'd really tried, I think you could really do this. And I just kind of thought, no, everybody sings. Like I just, you know, everybody sings in my head, but, uh, no, it, it came later. I, I started to pursue it. People started to kind of go, you can do this. And then the passion kind of followed me doing it. Wow. You thought everyone could sing. You obviously hadn't met me at that point in your life. Yeah. If you had, so I would have set you straight. Yeah, I was in an environment, it, you know, in a church environment, it feels like everybody can sing. Right, you know? right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. That's fascinating. So if there, can you actually trace that back to a moment then when you realized, oh, actually, no, I do have a, I do have something special about my voice, if I can put it that way. Because yeah. people, people weren't just saying that to be polite. Clearly, they'd seen oh. something in you that, that was standing out to them. Yes, they, they saw it. I remember at probably 16, I was in a youth choir rehearsal at my church. You, you have to be involved in a ministry if you go to my dad's church. So, of course, the preacher's kids, we got to do it. So I chose the youth choir and the choir director goes, wait, everybody stop. Anthony, sing that again. Yes, that's it. Everybody do what Anthony just did. And, and it was kind of like a moment of uh, I felt called out. But it was a moment where it it. it in a room of 40 people, I was the one that could pick it up really quick and do it really fast. And I just thought, okay, I'll sing it, you know, but, but that created a, there's something natural about him and people that, that was that guy, his name is Sylvester London. He's he just said that to me and I'll never forget that gave me like a, wait a minute, why does he keep calling on me to tell everybody else what to do? You know what I mean? Or to sing it so everybody else can hear it. Um, That's that started it. And I thought it was normal to have ears like that and where you could just hear it and sing it and, and and I learned later that that's not. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty special. So tell me about how music developed from that point on. What came next? Well, I went to college at Liberty University, sang with a group there. Then from there, there was a group. Um, uh, there was another group that I kind of got grafted into after college. It was like semi-professional. Then from there, um, I Kirk Franklin started going to our church in Dallas, and he heard me sing and was like, yo, come sing with me. And I thought, whatever. Like, he, he doesn't mean this. He probably says it to everybody. But sure enough, when I got out of that group that I just mentioned, the kind of semi-pro one, Kirk called immediately. And I went right on the road with him. And that was my first professional experience was on the road with Kirk Franklin on one of the Kirk Franklin, Yolanda Adams, and Donnie McClurkin singing with Kirk. Then one of Yolanda's singers got sick and had to leave. And Yolanda said, Anthony, come and sing with me too. So it just, it created this perpetual motion of, I, I mean, I was 21 and traveling the world with the biggest gospel act. You know what I mean? And, and, and that was like getting your master's degree. At that point, it was going to college and standing next to and behind some of the best. And I love that. I love the challenge. And um, 
And then just to fast forward, toured with Kirk for four years. Then a friend of mine said, you should be doing your own stuff. Like you should try to write, come to Nashville and write. So I did that. His name is Jason Ingram. He's one of the biggest writers in Christian music now. But he told somebody about me. And then I had a record deal in like five minutes. It felt it was so fast. It was like, okay, let's make an album. And that was uh, my first album in, in 2004. And so that has perpetual, perpetual motion has happened since then. That's the fast version. You know what I mean? Try not to hijack your whole show. <laughs> you've, that's impressive. That's a really impressive summary. You've clearly been asked that question before and be able to condense it all down. There's, there's some years in that summary, isn't there? That's, yeah, that's yeah, impressive. Yeah. yeah. And where do you find yourself sitting now? Because obviously you, you've done stuff where you're, you're covering other songs, you're writing your own. Where's, where's the balance in that in that for you? Because if I can put it this way, it's sometimes unusual to meet an artist who spends actually quite a lot of their time drawing on other material and covering that. Um, and you do that a lot. Um, and clearly you clearly you do that very well. Is that Has that been a deliberate thing for you to actually take worship songs already there and put your own kind of unique twist on it? Yeah, it, well, it was a deliberate. What happened was that I was in scenarios where I was asked to lead worship, of course, and sometimes my original music, they didn't know it yet. So I had to engage them, but then I didn't want to do the covers. I, I, I want to feel, there's certain feelings that I have when I listen to a song, I can hear it a different way. I just hear it a different way. And so it made me want to go and do that immediately. Like, uh, we're going to do this this way, you know? And so I did it a little bit um, and then it became a thing. The first album that I did that I was called The Bridge in 2007, that was actually because I got dropped from my record label. And I just went in a little house with some friends of mine and just said, we're going to cover some songs and make them fun. That album released and it was a number one album on iTunes. And I was like, what? Like, this is me doing covers. Like, what do you mean? And that created it back in 2007. And since then, people are like, what version of this song are you going to do? It kind of became a thing. So now I, I, I really enjoy it. But it was, again, like just doing it because I heard it and, and, yeah. and uh, but being really intentional about it. And tell me more about that experience of, of being dropped from a record label. Because I think a lot of people just assume, oh, you know, you're a successful Christian musician. You know, you just release music whenever you want. It's, it's not as simple as that. And I imagine that could be quite a difficult experience emotionally, especially if you're part of your identity, who you are, is wrapped up in, I am a musician, I make music. And then a record label says, we don't want any more music. That must be quite tough. It, it is tough. It was tough for me back then because the problem was, is that in Christian music, it was very divided. One sound was contemporary and the other sound was gospel. There was nothing in between. There were no Maverick Cities. There were no Chandler Moores. There was no Dante's. There was no tribal music. There was none of that. So I, I was doing, I was being genuine to me, but it wasn't commercial. It wasn't selling. That's the bottom line. So I had a choice in that moment. Do I be disingenuine to myself and make a bunch of music that I don't like to be popular or not. And, and I'm actually grateful now that I got dropped because if I wouldn't have and continue to make music I don't like and that become wildly successful, I'd be stuck singing songs I don't like for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? And you'd be stuck with going, man, these people like a fake version of me. They, they are liking something that I'm, I don't. So um, that's how that, that happened, really. So the, 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 the downturn, for lack of a better way to say it, was actually the beginning of the, up, the, the, the upswing of me being genuine to myself and that working. You're right. Obviously, there are Maverick City and other groups that bring different styles and genres together in a way that is very successful. Am I being inappropriate with my language, though, if I were to say that the time you're describing 
there was a kind of segregation, a kind of racial divide of whether well, you're either yeah. gospel or you're worship, you're either black or you're white, a kind yeah. of segregation within Christian music. Yeah, you, we, we say it was gospel or CCM, but if you want to say it that, that way, yes, I, you're not incorrect by saying it was white and black. <laughs> I mean, if you want to, you know, that that's just what it was. And it was crazy because pop music was moving out of that way before we did. Like pop music had the Rihanna's and the Britney's and the Beyonce's and the whoever, like way back then it was, you could listen to one station and hear different people of different backgrounds, but not in Christian music. It was one sound period, you know? Um, yeah, it's very, very, very interesting time. And I think the culture, what's happened in the culture in the last few years with you know, COVID and everybody being focused on diversity and the and the different things that came up during that time, it it made it to where Christians were like, we got to do something. Like we can't be, we can't ignore this anymore. And then um it the, the timing lined up with amazing music. Um, you know, groups like Mavericks, I keep mentioning them because I was on tour with them all summer and I was just mesmerized in these arenas full of an audience that I told would never happen. Like I watched an arena full of people and I was told 20 years ago, no, that's not how it works. This is not going to happen. So it's, it's been amazing. And I'm proud of them. Proud of all my friends that are doing it. I'm so proud. There's two ways of looking at it, isn't it? There's, there's the kind of pessimistic way of looking at it, which is, isn't it awful that we had a, a Christian music scene both in your country and ours, really, where there was that segregation, which is which is a fair point. There's also a more optimistic way of looking at it, which is perhaps what you've just said, which is, well, isn't it great we're not in that place anymore? Do you right. do you err uh, more towards the, the positive way of seeing that? Because there are some who would err more towards the criticism on that. Yeah, I, yes, I look at it both ways. I look at, isn't it great that we aren't in that position anymore? But I also look at it as it's unfortunate that it took a group blowing up on YouTube for it, for YouTube broke that down, not the Christian industry. The Christian industry didn't say, we're going to push this and make it work. YouTube did that. And then the Christian industry was like, we can't ignore the fact that 7 million people just watched this video by these kids. Like you, that to me makes me go, man, that's, that's kind of whack. Cause that means the gatekeepers weren't willing necessarily to do it, but the, the uh, outlier platforms did it. Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired, and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. Well, talking of gatekeepers, that brings us nicely on to The Voice. Uh, you went on The um, Voice in the US, which arguably is a kind of gatekeeper of, of music, or at least some of the kind of producers and, and people on that show. And we have The Voice here in the UK. We've got a British yeah. version of it, so people will know what I'm talking about. When I say that you went on as a, as a contestant, you did incredibly well, and you actually got to work with Christina Aguilera. So just tell yeah. me a bit about... I mean, first of all, kind of why go on that show? Because I, as I understand it, you were doing pretty well for yourself before you were on I The was. Voice. It's not like you I, needed it in that sense. Well, I went on that show because it was the same time that I got dropped. I see. I see. I got dropped. I, I made an album, but then I was like, I'm free to do whatever I want. And a friend of mine, his name's Jeremy Camp, amazing, amazing friend. He was like, you're not going to lose anything. Like, just do it. And that was that was a decade ago. I mean, it was season two. Like, it was actually season one. And then I couldn't go to season one. So I went to season two. It, it was 
such a long time ago and this show was huge. And I was like, why not do something outside of the box? Now, working with Christina and and the even the people that you would never see on screen, the casting director, when I first sang for her, she threw her pin down and said, stop. And I was like, oh, I guess I messed up. And she was like, why are you 30 or however I was, at, however old I was at that point? Why are you this old that I've never heard of you before? And I was like, whoa, that made me it took blinders off me when she said that it was like, Anthony, you know, one lane. But what if you weren't created for just that one lane? That's literally what she, when she said that. And the times I had with Christina that never aired, like we'd had Christmas dinner at her house and she was talking to me offline. She told me when I made my second album, Beautiful, you know, even though the content was nothing I would ever sing about really. She said, I was expected to be this little blonde pop princess. And I made an album that scared everybody. But she's like, Anthony, in a different way, I see you creating your own trail, like blaze your own trail. And it's scary at first, but there'll be a pathway behind you that's open for people to follow and do what you're doing in a different way. And that those conversations that I had, you couldn't ever pay to sit down and have dinner with Christina Aguilera and talk about music. Like that was, a, the voice was about that to me. The voice was about leaving the show and CeeLo, one of the other coaches, his producer calling me and saying, Hey, can you come to LA for three months and work on his project? That, that had, that wasn't, that was me winning. What was, was that moment when I did CeeLo's album and then that turned into me being in LA and working with Glee and Celine Dion and Mariah Carey and all these artists I've worked with since then. Um, that opened my eyes to there is more and your influence and your faith and your um, witness was not made for the inside of the four walls of a church. That that's, that's, it's like discussing plays in a huddle, but never breaking the huddle and doing something on the field. The voice led me to doing stuff on the field. As you know, I was just in uh, Texas, literally just, just a a few weeks ago. And, um, Texas is, of course, part of what's known as the Bible Belt, a very kind of Christian part of America, a lot of churches. And that's really where you're from is what you know. And I was fascinated to read something you said, though. You said that you needed to get out of the Bible Belt and go to L.A. And and for a lot of Christians in America, for some Christians in America, that's a bit of a scary thought because you're kind of leaving the safe, the safe Bible Belt and you're going to what some people would see as the kind of godless L.A. And and I guess the best way to explain this just for people who listening to this who may not understand the dynamic is when I was in Texas, I walked into just a normal restaurant and the first thing I could hear playing was Ren Collective, which was amazing. Yeah. I love, I love yeah. Ren Collective. Chris is the, is the front man and he writes a column yeah. for us. We love Ren, but, but that blew my mind as a Brit because I have never walked into a restaurant or cafe and heard Christian worship music playing anywhere. Hell, welcome and, to Texas. Just yeah, kidding. so it's exactly, it's kind of welcome to Texas. So that gives you a bit of an idea. Now, again, if you go to LA, that's far less likely to happen. It's just a very different culture. So tell me more about that move, that move from the kind of safety of the Bible Belt to somewhere where a lot of Christians might be a bit skeptical, even worried for you. For you, this was a, a kind of new lease of life. This was really good for you. So tell me, tell me more about why that was the case. Yeah, that was like moving. Well, I did it for work, but that was literally like moving from the practice gym to the court, to the actual court and playing a actual game with an actual opponent. And you know what I mean? So you need to be in the practice gym, but you don't stay in the practice gym. Like you, what's the point of being in the practice gym? You're never going to go on the field. That's what LA was to me. And I love sitting down and talking to people who had no idea what I was talking about. Like when I would bring up faith stuff, they were like, I don't, I have no idea. I would talk in churchy terms and they would look at me like, are you in a cult? Like it was just, you know what I'm saying? That was very interesting to me because that was the actual leaving the practice gym and going on the field. Now I wouldn't say 
stay on the court the whole time because you'll get exhausted. You'll start to the things that you know you're supposed to do, you won't be able to do because you're just tired, like that kind of thing. So I found a balance now, but that's what it was for me. Going to LA was like, oh my gosh, so this is what it feels like to do faith when there's opposition or to do faith when not everybody's on the same team going the same direction. Um, and I and I I actually really, really loved it and, and, and still do love it. But I, I balance it out and I have great, great friends. Um, who are I have friends that grew up like me in LA yeah. and it's funny because I I know some Christians who as I say are, are quite perhaps even scared of you know kind of Hollywood LA mm -hmm. but those same Christians will say hey we we need we need God's light to be in those places and you think well how is God's light going to be in those places unless Christians go there and actually make yeah. a positive difference so, so tell me a bit about that in terms of did you feel like you have had and have moments where you are there as a Christian and you're just able to bring something of, of God and your faith in a positive way. All the time, all the time, constantly. It's, it's constantly like, let's talk to Anthony about what he thinks, because for some reason he's grounded or let, you know, grounded. Or for some reason there's everybody talks about this. There's, there's this light in Anthony. I'm like, that's the Holy spirit. You know what I mean? But, <laughs> yeah. but it's, that happens all the time. It's, it's, it is, it is constantly that. So, so yes, I, I think that it's been very, very, very beneficial, very beneficial to me. I, I, I'm a different person in, in a good, in a great way since being, being there and working outside of this, this box. So tell me, what does the average day look like for you now? Oh my gosh. It looks, um, the average day is wildly different. So one day I got it, like last week, I got a call from DJ Khaled. I need you and I need this project in three days. So it was like, I went from chilling to, wah, and then turn it in. And then you kind of chill for a second. And then this week I have interviews um, throughout the week because of uh, the new projects we've been working on. And then I get on a plane and um, come to the UK. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's that the norm is that it's nothing is the same <laughs> in, in, in this line of work. It, does it also make it hard to kind of plan? And I think especially now about conversation we'll have around mental health, just, how do you build into your schedule that that downtime, that rest time? If at any point you could kind of be interrupted by a phone call, does that present its challenges? Yes, you have to be wildly intentional. You have to just make a decision before you go. Like in December, if I want time off, I have to block it because something is going to come up. And it's always hard. You have to under, to me, in order to create the best environment for you rest wise, um, uh, and, and longevity wise, you have to be willing to say no. And you have to be willing to trust that you have to be willing to not live from a scarcity mindset of this is going to be the last time anybody asked me to do anything. Because when you start living from a scarcity mindset, you say yes to everything. And then you're empty or you blow out your voice or you, your spirit hurts and you're still out there pushing. I have had to go, Anthony, it's been 20 something years. If God's called you to this, you can say no to this one thing. And he's going to honor the fact that you're saying no to make sure you're close to him. There's no way he's going to be like, well, I'm taking it all away. You shouldn't say no. No. You know what I mean? Um, I had to learn the art that there's always, when you say no, that means you're saying yes to something else and vice versa. Yeah. It's really helpful, isn't it? To, to, to think of it that way. Have there been any kind of collaborations that have been unexpected, but have been really special where you have met someone and worked together on a project. You think, wow, yeah. you know, this is a bit of a, a special thing here. Yeah, there's there's been a few, but but one I can think of in particular because it was a surprise email. I got a um I was on a plane and I got a email or text I can't remember, but it said, "Hey Anthony, when you land, can you go straight to Mariah's house?" And I was like, "Mariah, who? Like, why would you? 
like say it casually to me, like, what are you talking about? And uh, they were like, no, we need you to help us with this Christmas project. And it's for Mariah Carey. Can you land and go straight to her house? And that threw me off. Like I'm normally pretty good, but growing up, I have a high voice in general. Like everything is, everybody's like, why are your songs so high? I have a high voice. That's just what it is. So I would sing duets to her in the car. I would just make up duets to all of her songs because I was like, this this works. So in, inadvertently, she kind of taught me how to sing. Like my whole career is built on driving around the car at 15 and 16 and singing along to her. So to pull up to her house and walk in to the studio and, you know, I'm, I'm being professional and all that stuff, but I'm in the studio and look at all these plaques and I'm working on this Christmas music with the queen of Christmas. And I walked over and said, hi. And I just thought, what am I doing in your house? Like, this is so LA for it to be a last minute phone call and very casual. But that was a moment where I was like, this is nuts. Like, this is what happens when you start to take risk and go outside of your box. There'll be moments where it all, like, there's this circular, like, whoa, full circle moment. So that that's one of them. But there have been, I mean, 20 of those. To sort of make a decision, right, I've got to be professional here and not just be like the kind of fanboy of, oh my goodness, it's Mariah. Well, yeah, I, I would never do that because you will never work again if you do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> Cannot, you will never work again if you walk into studio, much less somebody's home. And, you know, so, but on the inside, I had to, that day I had to just go, you belong here. Like this is, you belong here. And there was one other moment I'll tell you about, you know, the movie, The Greatest Showman. Um, you know, it was just a, I had a friend, I was on vacation with friends of mine and I'll be brief because I know we're running out of time. I was uh, on vacation. My friend said, you should post you singing this song from the movie called Never Enough. And I just posted it, sang it. And then a couple minutes later, and I don't like posting singing. I just kind of felt like, oh, and then a couple minutes later, Hugh Jackman reposted it. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Like when you look at your, you know, your, your uh, notification that says Hugh Jackman repost, I was like, I had to look twice. Like, what do you mean? Long story short, the the girl who sings a song for the film got sick and the writers of that movie saw Hugh's post and said, let's call that guy to come to this pre Oscar party and sing that song. So I walk into this room with the cast of the movie and the cast of, you know, La La Land because the same director did it. And I um, sang this song in this room of people and thought, what am I doing here? You know, but, but I was ready for the moment because all the inconse- the things that would seem inconse- inconsequential along the way, I was faithful in those smaller things. And that's my encouragement to whoever's listening is when you're faithful in the small things, you have no idea what it's leading up to. And after I sang that song in the room, a, ca- a guy kept walked up to me and said, hey, um, I'm producing a show for Disney at the Hollywood Bowl and I need a lead. So do you want to do it? You're going to be Beast and Beauty and the Beast. And Zoe Deschanel is going to be uh, Beauty. And Rebel Wilson's going to be LeFou. And Kelsey Grammer's going to be. It was like this all-star cast. And then Anthony is at the center of this thing. So I went from that room to standing on the Hollywood Bowl stage with these sold-out 18,000 people nights. And my brain was like short-circuiting. But I had to think in those moments, you have done the work. And the only difference between you and the rest of the cast is that this audience just doesn't know your name yet. Like that was, so those moments, LA presents those moments where it culminating moments. And I really enjoy that challenge now because I've put in the work. Yeah. Or put in as much work as I can. You know? <laughs> and talking of putting in the work, it brings us nicely on to the new book um, because you've co-written it with a licensed therapist. And it's a, it's a book about mental health and about therapy, obviously from your perspective and from a Christian perspective. 
Um, and in many ways, mental health is, is a topical, timely issue that people are talking about. But in, in other ways, it's still not. In other ways, especially amongst Christians, there's still a little bit of hesitancy sometimes. Um, almost this idea that if you see a if you see a therapist, you've you've failed in some way or or something mm. is something isn't right. And uh, there's been this movement, I know, in this country amongst Christians to try and make these things just normal to talk about and say actually right. it, it's not it's there's nothing wrong with asking for help in fact it's a good thing so exactly. tell me a bit about your personal story and how that's led to this book well all these things this is a whole other side being an artist i'm a highly emotional dude i feel things on a deep level there's a high performance you know with my life it's kind of high performance like there's a lot of moving parts and i think therapy is like t- telling an athlete professional athlete man you're weak for needing to go to the training room and get your ankle wrapped or you're weak for needing to go work on strengthening your back or strengthening your, that's crazy. So there is, I feel like telling people that, well, why would you do therapy is like telling a professional athlete, why would you go to the training room? That does, because I'm a pro, like, because I, because I want to be high performance. So I had to get into a place because when I deal with relationship issues or breakups or anything like that, it can throw me all the way off to where I just can't do anything. So I started talking about my issues with a therapist who um, I saw on a TV show because I needed somebody who wasn't connected to really any therapist I went to in a church setting knew my family. So I started off kind of feeling like, um, how do I talk to you without you? Because you you know, every, you already know everybody, you know? So I started talking to Stacey six years ago and the gyms and the things that she's told me and the life-changing things that she's um, helped me implement tools into my life and my faith to actually walk it out. Those tools have changed my existence. And I was like, people need to know this. Some people cannot get to therapy. So I want to write about it. Can we do that? And she was like, that's weird because most therapists can't even acknowledge their client at the mall, much less write a book with them. So, or all therapists can't acknowledge their client. So I signed away some of my confidentiality and she allows me to tell my story, but we wrote a book together called When Faith Meets Therapy. And I think it provides, again, like you mentioned, practical, a practical pathway to hope and relational healing. And I think it was, that is one of the, I'm, I'm probably most, that top three most proud of projects that I've done, because I really believe that those tools will help people, um, you know, get, become their best, the best version of themselves and to have internal peace and not chase it through external circumstances. And I won't ask you for all the tools because then no one will buy the book and people need to buy yeah, the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But could you at least give us just maybe one or two insights? Um, give us a bit of a taste of the kind of stuff that you're getting out in the book. For sure. Well, each chapter is covers a different, whether it's fear, guilt, toxic relationships, which there's a couple chapters on that because we couldn't cover it all in one. Um, you know, uh, I'll go to, to, to relationships. I was, I, because of my faith, I um, would, would implement the concept of forgiveness, but then not have boundaries. So I, in turn, would become a victim to my own compassion in relationships. And I think that we we do that a lot in faith because we're supposed to forgive and we're supposed to just forget. And to, but we're also supposed to guard our hearts. So we talk about practical tools and ways to place yourself in a scenario where you forgive the toxic person, but then you reposition them in the room. My um, therapist one day used the example of me. I was auditioning for Hamilton on Broadway. And she said, Anthony, if you were on Broadway and there was somebody in the front row of your front row of your show on their phone or talking and pulling you out of character, what would happen to them? I was like, well, they'd be told to be quiet or put their phone away. Yeah. She said, what if they didn't do that? Then they would be moved to the back of the room. Then what if they kept doing it from back there? Maybe they'd move them to the balcony. 
And then what if they kept, uh, she kept going. I was like, they'd be put out. She said, exactly. If there are people that you have given a front row seat to your life and they are distracting and pulling you out of your character, you move them. And there was a part of me that didn't believe that anybody would want to come sit in that front row seat if I moved them, that I had value issues I had to deal with. Um, But once I started doing it, once I started repositioning people in the room, there would be my best friends now sit in those front row seats and they don't want to see anything other than me be in the character that God called, that God's called me to and vice versa for them. So I think... One of the principles that we talk about in the book is not becoming a victim to your own compassioning, a compassion and the art of repositioning people in the room so that you are never pulled out of the character that God's called you to. That's really interesting. You know, we're, we're running a special mental health issue at Premier Christianity magazine. And one of the features that we've written is about a church in Bath and Southwest of, of England that's actually run by someone who is a, a kind of mental health expert and a pastor. And as mm-hmm. you can imagine, you know, the pastoral care there sounds pretty, pretty incredible. You've been in church circles your whole life. Have you ever heard things preached or taught from the front of church that, that now you look back on, you think, well, now that I have a bit more knowledge of our emotional world, I'm not sure if that's a helpful thing to be preaching or teaching in, in our church context. Yeah, I think that there are things that we're teaching that aren't necessarily not accurate, but they're oversimplified for some. They're just like some people in class need tutoring. You can oversimplify something. Like I remember being in algebra class and everybody got it. And I was like, I'm lost because I needed tutoring. So if you say be anxious for nothing, for some people, it's like, I should just be able to read that and not be anxious. But no, that doesn't work that way for everybody. Sometimes you need practical tools on how to figure that out. You know, and so that's, I don't think it's been, wrong as much as oversimplified in some areas and and not been said, Hey, if you need some extra help with this, it's okay. Diagnosis for yourself. Didn't you? Is it um, ADD for you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm all over the place. And I don't know if it's like, I don't know what's caused it, whether it's my life and moving and songs and producing all that stuff, or if it was just there, but yeah, it's very hard for me to pay attention. It's just, I will zoom. I'll be like squirrel and I'll just see something go by in my head. But, uh, yeah, so that that's that's something I have to work with. It's great for being able to do a lot of things at one time, but it's also like, no, I gotta, I need help focusing on yeah. what, what I need to do. So when did you come? Up, when did that get diagnosed? Um, it's been early on, like in college, right? And was that quite? Because it's interesting. Some some people find it really helpful when they get a diagnosis because it kind of explains things that they thought were weird about themselves, or oh, other people totally. thought were weird, and it kind of gives you a new way of understanding yourself, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does. It, 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 that's just like therapy. When you get to the root of an issue, then you can start work. You can pull it up from the root as opposed to clipping off weeds and clipping things that make it grow back. So yes, it gets to like, oh, this is the root. Now let's work from there. So what are your hopes for this book as it releases? What are you hoping it will achieve? That people feel freedom, that they don't feel alone, that they feel like somebody being transparent has given them the, the wherewithal to like take a step in the right direction. Well, Anthony, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Profile. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Profile. Well, my thanks to you for joining us this afternoon here on Premier Christian Radio for The Profile. It's been wonderful to have your company. And I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with the Christian worship musician and author, Anthony Evans. We were speaking towards the end there about Anthony's latest book. It is entitled When Faith Meets Therapy, Find Hope and a Practical Path to Emotional, Spiritual and Relational Healing. If you want to get hold of that book, it is available now, published by Thomas Nelson, wherever books are sold. Anthony Evans, When Faith Meets Therapy. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Profile Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we would so appreciate it if you could give us a rating and a review wherever you found this episode. Helps other people to discover the show. Here at the Profile Podcast, we're now publishing two episodes every week. And what that means is every Wednesday, you will get a special interview on the topic of Christian leadership. My colleague, Andy Peck, has been conducting those interviews for Premier Christian Radio for over 17 years, meeting some of the best and brightest minds on all things Christian leadership. And so we've decided to bring you some of those most excellent conversations right here on the Profile Podcast. So midweek, you'll be getting those great conversations that Andy Peck has been hosting. If you look on your podcast feed, you'll already see there's a conversation with Gemma Hunt, the CBBC presenter, and also with 24-7 Prayers bewildered founder Pete Gregg so do check out those bonus episodes they're coming for you on your podcast feed every Wednesday and then every Friday as normal we'll be bringing you these longer more in-depth discussions about a person's life faith testimony ministry and all that God is doing through them so as I say if you do appreciate these conversations give us a rating and a review it really really helps thank you so much for being with us and lending us your ears today it's been wonderful to have your company and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.